Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. And we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And joining us today is a guest that we're very excited about, Melissa Morrill. And since we know that a, a fair number of the people who listen to this podcast have been connected at some point in their life to the CRCDS family, uh, that makes a, Melissa a, a charming guest to have here because she went there herself and then worked there for a number of years in enrollment services. And during those years that you were there, Melissa, basically everybody in the CRCDS family, you were the first person we met. <laughs> so, yeah. And the most frequent person that we saw. Right. Well, yeah. well, thank you. I appreciate being asked. And it's uh, fun to reconnect with people that um, I met so many years ago and to see how your ministry has progressed. And so it's an honor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it, it, I was explaining to my mom, who is also an avid listener to this podcast. Hi, mom. Um, but you know, who, who, who you were and what your role was at CRCDS. And I was explaining that, you know, if, if we had gone to a big seminary in finger quotes, and there aren't a lot of huge seminaries left, but if we had gone to a bigger seminary, um, you know, head of enrollment services might not have been, you know, this person that everybody knew, but at a school like CRCDS, where my graduating class only had about 20 people in it, and we were a big one, right? Um, <laughs> you know, like the people who are working in the front office are people that you see all the time. And my first two years there, because I was so young when I went to CRCDS, I was only 22 when I moved in. Um, I moved, I lived on campus. And so like the building and grounds people, you know, were, were hanging around all the time and I knew them by name, you know, like, and that was, that wasn't true when I went to college at the university of Rochester, I didn't know any of the building and grounds people. And I probably should have, but I, I didn't because it was a big school, but CRCDS isn't like that. It's a family. So right. that was, you know, one of the things that I really loved about it, and I think the size of the school is something that it struggles with and something that has hindered it in a lot of different obvious ways, but it's also a really big plus. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so I don't know if you want me to talk about CRCDS or do you want me to start with the my ministry story or? <laughs> yeah, let's, how about we start where we usually do in these? So tell us as much as you'd like to about your spiritual journey. Sure. All right. Well, I think, you know, for most people, you're, at least your early formation is somehow intertwined with your parents um, because you, they're your first teachers. And um, my my dad was raised Catholic. My mom was raised Presbyterian. So when they got married, that was back in the 60s, that was considered a mixed marriage. <laughs> and um, my they, they did agree when they got married to raise the children Catholic. That lasted for maybe the first nine years of my life. So so I, I was baptized Catholic, had my first Holy Communion. And then um, they, this was back in the 70s, and there, there were a number of charismatic renewals happening at the time. And the Catholic charismatic renewal was something that my parents gravitated towards. Uh, and so if you're not familiar with the, the renewal 
Um, it was a, a time where there was more, more like free worship in terms of uh, allowing the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be expressed. So speaking in tongues, um, more free form prayer, yeah, faith healing. Um, so so kind of almost like a Pentecostal uh, influence in the Catholic Church. Um, and and so, so they were involved in that for a number of years and actually you know, count, very countercultural in the sense that like we even, we were part of, we, we went to mass every Sunday, but then they were part of a community, a community of ca these charismatic Catholics who had their own prayer meetings. And some of them actually decided to form an, an intentional community. And so my parents considered joining that intentional community. We actually put our house on the market. I think the reason we didn't actually join or actually live with the other people is that um, our house didn't sell. So, so, but, but it was, you know, so kind of an interesting time in the seventies to grow up in, in that context. And Eventually, at least in the in the Rochester area, the the priests were not um, very. They, they weren't at the forefront of the leadership of the of the charismatic renewal, and I think my parents were feeling like, in order for them for them to grow spiritually, they needed more leadership, and so they ended up leaving the Catholic Church and going to a, an independent Pentecostal church. So, so very different <laughs> in terms of just where you know where we were headed. Um, that you is know, so profoundly different. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know. You know, wow. so I think, yeah, just the you know the focus on on the Holy Spirit was important to them, but culturally, being in that kind of church, you know, it's like a whole new set of rules. So it's like all of a sudden, it's like you know, Halloween wasn't okay, and um, you know, I think some of the stereotypes that go along with more conservative. Um, Pentecostal or evangelical churches. That was the context that that I was in, um, you know, during during high school and then um, even even into my my twenties and early thirties. So actually, even when I started seminary, um, I was still in in a church like that, but kind of pressing up against the the boundaries. I think in terms of just feeling like uh, as a woman. I hadn't seen women in ministry in, in that context, um, but I was feeling a call to ministry. And, um, and and it was still within the particular stream of Pentecostalism that we were in, women were not prohibited from being um, ordained. I just hadn't seen it. Um, so so I was kind of a new, um, probably the first person that a lot of people in my church had, who had seen a woman actually pursue ordained ministry. Um, so, um, Probably met with a little bit of suspicion uh, because I, you know, I ended up going to Colgate Rochester Crozier, which I mean, when I when I started there, I had there was a I can't remember the the person's name, but like the, you know, they asked me what my tradition was and when I said Pentecostal, he looked at me and he goes, "You don't belong here." <laughs> so so you know, kind of always that feeling of like, okay, you know, where do I fit? Um, but almost becoming like a bridge person where it's like. Um, I, you know, I was being fed by both places and helping to break down some of the stereotypes and um, preconceptions that people had about Pentecostals and, and within my church also breaking down preconceptions they might have about people who are in mainline Christianity. Um, but, you know, CRCDS, it just changed me. I, I mean, I think it gave me the... Um, confidence to to pursue ministry you know I honestly I didn't even have to have a seminary degree to be ordained in that tradition um, but I, I felt like I needed it in, in order to feel confident um, as a, well as a 
uh, an ordained person in general, but particularly because I was a woman, I felt like I needed additional credentials. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so I so I ended up actually I was the very first woman to preach in my church. The the founding pastor um, he wasn't there anymore at the time, but the founding pastor never allowed women in the pulpit. So so I was the first woman to actually preach there. And um, you had asked for a, a ministry war story. I, I didn't think that was going to be a war story, <laughs> but when I when I, when I did my first sermon, um, you know, Stephanie Sauve actually came and she um, came to support me, and and I used one of the sermons I had written for one of my for Gail Ricciuti's classes, <laughs> and, um, and and I thought everything went well, and then within a week, I think at least two families had left the church. <laughs> So, so all of a sudden I became like this um, lightning rod, I think in terms of controversy and, um, you know, so, so I think that was like eye-opening in the sense where I thought that I was in a place where people would accept me, but not everybody was willing to accept me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that that is, that uh, unfortunately that's a, that, that experience resonates with me a lot in the ministry and I've never been Pentecostal, but. <laughs> feeling like you're, you're, you're in a place that should be a safe place, but because of the role that you're inhabiting, it's really not ever a completely safe place. Right. Right. Yeah. No. And, you know, and I did a lot of work in, uh, at CRCDS around the role of women. And I, I looked at, you know, the history of women and Pentecostalism, um, and even the particular, um, stream of Pentecostalism that we were a part of, it was really founded by women. There were the Duncan sisters in Rochester in the early 1900s. And then once they were too old to carry on the ministry, it got taken over by men and they were essentially written out of the history. So most people didn't realize that it was really started by women. And um, wasn't the Azusa Street revival, was it Amy Semple McPherson or something? She was the one that kind of started that out in LA. Yeah, um, well, Azusa Street was um, William Seymour, who was a black man. Okay. Okay, but, sorry, um, I got all no, my no, but you're right. No, but Amy, yeah, yeah, Amy Semple McPherson was out in Los Angeles also in um, Foursquare Gospel. Yeah, yes. so yes, <laughs> yeah, no, so yeah, so I de yeah, I delved into all these women uh, preachers. You know, they're they're a mixed. You know, Amy Semple McPherson is a a mixed bag too because she has some controversy around her. Um, but you know, but it's always. Um, you know, I, I love history and actually I, that was one of my minors in, in undergraduate. So it's like, okay, like looking at, you know, how do we get to where we are and, and what kinds of stories have been either co-opted or covered up and, um, mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, in, 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 I think it helped me see that, you know, th this wasn't a, a really unique thing to have a woman in ministry, but it's like, this has been part of, uh, you know, a long tradition. It just hasn't, the story hasn't always been told. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, think about all the women that Paul talks about at the ends of his letters. Yes. And then suddenly, like a generation later, later, suddenly women aren't allowed to, you know, be in ministry anymore. So that's like something that happens very quickly. I think. Exactly. And also we've yeah. always we've always been there, just like you said, with Paul's stories and in the founding of these movements. And then mm -hmm. some revisionist history happens after, you know, the men get a little tired of sharing the spotlight. And then they change our name in the Bible from Junia to Junius. Yep. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, they they try to they try to hide us and make us go away. But jokes on them. We just keep coming back. Exactly. Yeah, that's because our money supports the church and our unpaid labor. <laughs> 
Right, right. No, um, no, and actually, you know, because, you know, I struggled even then, you know, when I was in seminary, it's like, okay, do I stay in this tradition or not? And um, I did an independent study uh, with Stephanie Save, and we we used a book uh, by Miriam Therese Winters uh, that talks about defecting in place, you know, so... um, Miriam Therese Winters was Catholic and she decided to stay within the Catholic tradition and, and basically be a, a, a person who was resisting from within, you know, and, and so, so that's, that's kind of the tactic that I took for a while, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay, I'm going to, um, you know, be authentic to who I am and in the tradition that I was raised in and try to do some good here. Um, you know, I, then I, you know, as, well, I guess I should add to my husband is he was also um, ordained in in that tradition and was serving a church, and so um, he, you know, he was the the senior pastor. I had a, I had a job outside of the church at, at Colgate, so um, so you know I wasn't being paid by the church, but it's like I was working alongside him within the within the churches, yeah, un, unpaid labor. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah. But um, and I think you know in, in seminary, you know that I was also thinking, well, okay, if my husband's a pastor, I'm still going to want to be with him on Sundays. I didn't want to have my own church necessarily, and so I was really preparing myself to do chaplaincy, um, and had done my uh, supervised ministry at Kirkhaven, um, thinking that that was the route that I was going to take, and and you just you never know how God's going to just open doors that you never <laughs> anticipated, <Yeah. laughs> you know. And so, uh, like a month after I graduated with my MDiv, I, I I got a call out of the blue by um, from the former vice president for enrollment, and he's like, "Hey, I've got this position for director of uh, student life. You would you be interested?" And so, of course, you're looking for a job that's paying something. So I'm like, "Sure." <laughs> um, and, and so that's how I ended up on staff there. But you know, I really I I always viewed it as a ministry, um, and particularly when I started as a director of student life, it it had a chaplaincy component because I was um, helping students. Um, it, well, certainly they could come in and talk to me if they had issues, but but then also doing some programming around. Um, we would do like um, you know little prayer groups, or we did the labyrinth. You know, we did things to try to help enrich um, the spiritual lives of students as they were um, as they were studying. And you know, because you know how sometimes in seminary it's like you're so involved academically in the Bible that sometimes you forget the you know, the nurturing side of your own spirit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I got involved at at, at CRCDS in the, in the administration. And never, you know, no one goes for an MDiv saying I want to be a higher ed administrator. <laughs> um, but then within a few years, um, the the vice president left for another position and they promoted me. And so I did that for probably 11 years. And um, and like you said, Natalie, it, it was an honor. I think the, the ministry there was being able to sit with people who were discerning their own call and, and saying, you know, not just discerning whether they have a call, but is the call, does it make sense for them to attend this particular seminary? Um, so, so it's kind of just working through the discernment process with them and helping them to understand what kind of a seminary it is, what the culture was like, and then how, how does that fit with their needs and their, um, their background? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I can I can say and I'm really sure that the two of you will be able to agree with this, that uh, 
it, it's more than just your call to ministry that you're discerning by the time you get to seminary. <laughs> like the, the the journey that I went through there and that most people that I know went through in seminary is one that really you, you see a lot of your life start to get deconstructed around you. So, I mean, and during those years, uh, I, I, I started when I was 22 and graduated when I was 25. I got married during that time and got my first home with my husband, um, you know, and, and went through all kinds of, uh, of waves of, you know, what is the United Methodist Church to me, even though I've belonged to that institution my whole life, being part of it um, as clergy is extremely different than growing right. up in it. And, you know, you know, like, and I mean, and even during that time, I permanently changed my residency from Illinois to New York, because I, I came in and still had an Illinois driver's license because I'd grown up in Chicago. Um, so a lot of big transitions happened during that time. And, and even though I was younger, like I, that was true for most of my classmates who were second career, who were older, like you know, they, they just all kinds of stuff. So you, you were very, very much our chaplain. <laughs> well, thank you. And well, and having experienced it, because I think, my goodness, I think the first year that I was, I mean, talk about deconstruction, you know, it's, it, you know, being exposed to all these new ideas and um, questioning, okay, well, what from my tradition do I hold on to? What do I let go of? And how, how do I maybe integrate some of them too? And um yeah, so I, I probably at the end of every semester, I was like saying to my husband, do I stay, you know, because, it, you know, you're just kind of questioning um, all along. But I, I think that first year in particular is really difficult. And then and then it is like a reintegration. It's like as you as you progress in your in your seminary um, experience, that it's like, OK, develop really examining what you believe and um, what historical tradition has taught and, and what makes sense for you moving forward. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah. I do have to say that um, a lot of times, you know, when you're like, for me in particular, I was extremely broke at the time when I started at CRCDS. I was working mm -hmm. two jobs just to be able to afford, you know, tuition because I didn't want to take on more debt. I still had boatloads of debt for my undergrad. And just you and Polly Bush and like a lot of the other people were just very calming, like pastoral presences for me. And I think for a lot of people, just very, very calming. And um, I don't know, just very, very helpful. And that mm -hmm. that calming presence always helped me like say, okay, these people are on my team, they're going to try to help me out. They're not going to be mad at me because I'm frazzled as heck from like coming straight from my job to, to work, you know, yeah. or to, you know, drive an hour and a half out to Rochester for class. Yeah. So it was, mm -hmm. it was very nice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, like our this is audio only, so our, our listeners can't see this, but it's it's really prophetic that you're sitting under a light as far as that's <laughs> oh, like a halo. <laughs> yeah, that is what Melissa was to us when we were students there. Like you, you would just walk out of your office and 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 you would just be perfectly poised when I felt like a complete disaster inside and out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad that I I was helpful. I mean, I, you know, and I think that. I don't know that this is strictly true for women, but but I think that all, you know, all of us, all people, it's like, um, we all have our internal struggles. And um, I think that 
one of the, you know, I still have struggles every single day, you know, but, but, but it's, but it's like, I think I never want those struggles to impact other people. And so it's like trying to set aside what's going inside me so that I can be present for other people. And, um, and sometimes that, you know, sometimes that helps you with what, what you're dealing with, because it's like, okay, if I'm helping other people, um, I, you know, my, my problems don't seem so big. <laughs> yeah. Or at least you're not alone in them. Yes. Yeah. And wasn't there like a really weird, large Egyptian sarcophagus in your office or something? I, I remember oh, well, for a time. Yeah. For a time, they did actually have a real sarcophagus against one of the walls, but then in the back, you might be thinking it was a replica of the code of Hammurabi. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cause there, the, yeah. in like the 19th century and the early 20th century all over upstate New York, there's just like these random Egyptian artifacts in small towns and various like institutions um, because they were brought back by some rich dude from the local area and was just like hey I bought this in like Egypt and here it is here local library here local seminary you know so yeah did those um, come with the group to to the new location or did they get donated to... I think they got donated I I I have it because I've been to the new location and I haven't seen the code of Hammurabi um, okay but I, I know that the sarcophagus before I left they were they were talking to various museums and seeing who might be able to take it um there was actually one of our former students he he, had, he was doing some archaeological research and so I think they were going to see if the if they would allow him to use it so he could um do you know whatever testing and things he could on it interesting <laughs> yeah that's cool yeah yeah that is that is you know it's just it, it, it's what I what I uh have adored about CRCDS is that it is this um you know it's this small unique school that you know it, it could that it faces the danger that it, it could close someday like any human made institution but it has so much personality and history hidden within it yeah. <laughs> and, and the more of those layers they just keep coming out yeah no i and one of the things i really enjoyed doing were, were like the the tours with um with prospective students because because of the history too it's like um i felt like a museum docent you know coming and showing you know the various stained glass windows and how they were related to our history and um yeah so you know i think someday when i don't need to make any money i'd like to be a docent at a museum <laughs> yeah, totally so we know that you have moved on from that staff position at CRCDS. So what are you doing in your ministry and in your work these days? Right. So, yeah, so back in 2018, um, so I left CRCDS then and um, really at a kind of a, a pivotal time in my life, too, because my my oldest daughter, Caitlin, um, she had just graduated from college and she was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an autoimmune um well, it's an autoimmune dis disease. In her case, it was an acute form of it where um, it causes nerve damage. And so she was hospitalized, lost a lot of um, nerve function in her face. And so so it, it was actually, you know, the most horrible of times in our lives, but fortuitous in the sense that I, I could leave my position and care for her. And um, so for, for at least a year, it was really just you know, taking care of her. She has speech and occupational therapy and physical therapy you know, several times a week. Um, but she she was in a relationship before getting sick. She was in a relationship with a person who lived um, near Syracuse. And you know, 
they've actually since gotten married. And so, um, so when she moved here or to Syracuse, that's where I am now, um, you know, we, we kind of followed her because we could, Tim, my husband, Tim works remotely and I was looking for a new position. And, um, so we wanted to be near her to continue to support her in her recovery. Um, but that, but that, Again, God just opens doors. My, my husband found this position and he's like, this sounds like something you, you would really like. And um, it's at an organization called Interfaith Works of Central New York. Mm -hmm. And it was founded in 1976 by a group of um, clergy from different faiths. And they, they were really initially focused on continuing the work of the civil rights movement. Um, so the initial programs were around uh, racial dialogue and racial understanding, interfaith understanding. Um, but since that time, it's really grown in terms of developing um, two other programs. So, so they maintain the, the Center for Dialogue. Um, and then there's a Center for New Americans. Um, so back in the early 1980s, they started a refugee resettlement. And that, that program has grown particularly in the last few years because uh, well, the increased need. I mean, it's like with the people coming from Afghanistan, from Ukraine. Um, so while, you know, during COVID where other or other organizations might have been struggling, we were growing. Uh, we've actually almost doubled in size since I started there just because of the need. Yeah. And, um, and then the third program is the Center for Healthy Aging, which works to uh, provide companionship to older adults so that they can stay in their homes. So it's, so it's not medical um, assistance, but it's um, true companionship where you've got someone who comes into your home is someone that you can talk to. They help you with um, help, help, help our seniors with, you know, light, light errands, maybe take them to the library. Um, but it, but it's, it provides the, uh, it provides the family with an opportunity to, to have some respite and, and also, uh, ensures that the people who are at home don't suffer from loneliness, um, because that, that's, you know, if, if you look at the statistics on loneliness, it, that can be as bad as smoking. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm glad. So two, two comments based on that. Um, number one, I'm really glad that your organization is continuing to do refugee resettlement. A lot of organizations got hit very hard during the Trump administration, particularly church ones. Yes. And some church denominations were just like, well, we don't care anymore because we uh, don't like refugees anymore, even though they're like spitting on their own, you know, history, because a lot of those programs were set up by like soldiers returning from World War II, right? right. So um, I'm glad to hear that your organization is is doing that. And then also we do have a very, especially in the Buffalo area, upstate New York, there is a massive aging population and as a society, we are not prepared for that at all. I mean, mm -hmm. I used to work with a geriatric clinic and the gaps in care just for, like you said, you know, for caring for people in their homes, not just medically, but socially, we are not prepared for it at all. So I'm so glad you guys are doing that. That's great. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I'll, just a comment on, yeah, prior to, to my joining uh, Interfaith Work, so this would have been like 2016, 2017, when Trump first came into office. They did, you know, experience, um, you know, a decline in the number of refugees they were resettling just because they weren't allowed to come. And 
Um, so what they did is they they pivoted and um, instead of focusing just on the first 90 days of resettlement, they started to build out programs that could serve the refugees who were already here for a longer term. Um, so we so we actually ended up growing our programs during that time so that we're providing longer term care um, all the way up through five years to immigration classes and um we also have uh, an intensive case management program. So for people who have um, critical health or mental health needs, um, you know, they're, they're making sure that they're getting to the appropriate doctors. And, and so really walking alongside people for more than just the 90 days that the refugee resettlement program typically does. Yeah. Yeah. That is so cool. Ugh. Yeah. Love no, it so and it, when, what I love, what I love about where I work too, and is, um, over over 50% of our employees are from other countries. And, and so it's like, you know, you're walking through the lobby and it's almost like being at the United Nations because you're hearing all different languages and um, many of them were refugees themselves. So so it's like they're, they're serving people and knowing exactly what it's like to come to a country where you know no one. Um, so the best the best colleagues I've ever worked with, I mean, just in terms of their heart and their commitment to mission and we all work really, really hard. Um, you know, so I, I say it's, it's probably I probably work harder than I have at any other job, but I wouldn't want to do it with a different group of people, just um great colleagues. Um so I so I guess in terms of my work there, you know, I'm not doing case management, but I'm I'm on the administration side. I I, I directly support the president as a chief administrative director, but I also I think the transferable skills from my last position, it's like I, I'm do human resources too. So I'm meeting with with staff members when they've got issues and helping them to 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 deal with what whatever um, issues they might be dealing with. Um, and then also, uh, we, this is another interesting piece of our our history that you know I told you we were started by a group of interfaith clergy. So we have a roundtable of faith leaders that meets monthly, um, and they've been not the same people, but same same traditions <laughs> have been meeting for over 46 years monthly. Um, so, so people from, you know, so we have Jews and Muslims and Christians from different stripes and Zen Buddhists and Sikhs and Hindus, you know, who, who all get together monthly um, to, to, to look for common ground. Um, you know, so it's, you know, so it's a great group of people who are developing relationships with each other, um, I, because of my theological training, I've been honored to be to be a part of those meetings as well, and um, and so, you know, so so it's so not just developing relationships with, with one another, but recognizing that there is common ground, and there are, in terms of our social issues and the things that are happening in our community, that when we come together our differences aren't as important as our similarities. And, you know, and that we, you know, we're all committed to ending racism. Um, we're, we're committed to um, helping refugees. We're committed to, uh, you know, you know wh whatever social issue is happening in, in our air, in our particular sphere, we're, we're trying to work to, um, to bring people together to, to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that's gotta be really critical, right? At this very moment in history. Oh my goodness. It is. Yes. No, in fact, we just had a, a meeting two weeks ago. Uh, yeah. And so again, we do, we, we take time to have those hard conversations. So we, we had uh, a Muslim speak from their perspective and what was happening in their community. And then we had um, the president of the Jewish Federation talk about, you know, well, from his perspective, but it was done in such 
a loving and respectful way. And I think, you know, the common ground is there's human suffering and no, nobody wants to see human suffering. So it's like, how, how do we stop this? And um, yeah, I mean, we, we as the Roundtable of Faith Leaders can't stop the war, but what can we do in our community to um, foster dialogue and to prevent um, further acts of hate? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And for our listeners, it is October 26th. So um, if you're trying to keep track of where we are, um, yeah. if you're listening in the future. So. <laughs> and hello <laughs> to the future. Right. <laughs> and I'm so yeah. I'm just so thankful that those dialogues are happening right now um, because it just seems that on the Internet, people are just screaming at each other while yeah. on the ground, both in the Middle East and here, people are doing the hard work of having conversations that don't involve screaming. Yeah. So um, let's always remember that that's, I think, where um, people of goodwill really need to, you know, mm -hmm. remember is that we need to have those dialogues in person and establish that common humanity because screaming on the internet's not going to help anything. Exactly. No, as much as you might think that it might at the time that you hit that caps lock and start typing, but... Yeah. And I mean, the, the work that you're doing, Melissa, is just very, very much uh, it, you are living out Matthew 25. Right. Is It is a more Christian ministry than, than you know, um, than a lot of us become engaged with in local churches, not for not for a lack of goodwill, but just because uh, in, you know, in local church life, uh, you you tend to get taken over quickly with things like planning fundraiser dinners and capital improvement projects and uh you know what color is the new carpet going to be <laughs> and things like like minutiae the little stuff it, it becomes huge and in and, and if you don't stay connected to your 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 news your world and especially to your colleagues you, you forget there's a much bigger world out there and that that's what Jesus is really calling us to right Right. No, and I, I'm just always amazed. Um, you know, it, we've we've got 75 employees, and when I started, we only had 32. But you know, this this small organization here in Syracuse. But the things that happen in the world, it's like we're directly connected to in so many ways. You know, it's like you know, during the Black Lives Movement, um, you know, we we were, I and mean, we were we've always been doing racial dialogues, but it's like all of a sudden, it's like we we were, it was an opportunity for us to elevate our voice there. Um, you know, certainly during these different migrations from Afghanistan and Ukraine and who knows where else next in the world, um, you know, but wherever there's there's trouble and war, um, you know, people are forced to migrate and, and forced migration is traumatic. Um, so, um, you know, for, for those who think that, you know, people just want to come to the United States, they don't necessarily even, they didn't necessarily want to leave their homes, they had to leave their homes. And, and so, so forced migration is traumatic. And um, we, we approach our, our work with a trauma informed um, sense of care for our clients. And, um, and, you know, our tagline is affirm dignity. So, um, so for every client um, who comes through our doors, uh, they're, they're human first. And so we affirm their dignity as a human. And um, so that really undergirds everything that we do. Yeah. You know, it's so funny, too, is that, and you, as you said, forced trauma or forced migration is traumatic. I mean, there's so much material in the Bible that discusses warfare 
having to leave your home, forced migration, because that happened several times. Deportations happened numbers of times in the Bible, um, in history, in that area. And um, I'm surprised we don't actually talk about that more. We don't actually embrace that um, that that side of things and use that to inform our behaviors. But I'm glad that your organization seems to do that. Yeah. Sorry, that's my daughter. Hold on. <laughs> Hi, Charlotte. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's what we're doing in a nutshell. Um, I'm trying to think of what, you know, so I've already talked about our Center for Healthy Aging too. And um, yeah, oh, one other thing with our Center for Dialogue, um, we work with the public schools too. So I, I think we're over 30 different schools that we're working in now, K through 12. Um, you know, in the younger grades, they're they're doing kindness clubs, and and so so working with with children uh, around differences in, in a context that you know makes sense for for little ones. Um, but then when they get into the middle and high school, they're doing um, dialogues within. You know, sometimes it's intra school dialogue, so they're just working with the students right within those schools. But then they also have inter school dialogues where they pair maybe a more rural. Um, school with an urban school so that so if you're if, if you're in a context where there's not a lot of diversity they're being exposed to people from different backgrounds and so it gives them an opportunity to learn about difference in a, in a way that's respectful and um hopefully break down the barriers and the the things that tend to separate us as people mm -hmm. and the the big difference that you can see decades down the line when we reach out to younger generations with that Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And the, I'd be part of the one of the high school programs they have is called Seeds of Peace. Um, and that is is a more that's more of an after school program that you know, pe people can opt into. Um, but then those people who participate in the Seeds of Peace program have the opportunity to go to Maine. I think it's a two-week camp in the summer um, where people from all over the country come together, and and so they're they're again they're doing dialogues. It, it, initially, it was started to. Um, specifically deal with uh, the Palestinian uh, Israel or Jewish divide. So, um, but, you know, it's kind of expanded, but th that's where the roots of it were to, to look at that, that division and, um, and help to bring some reconciliation and understanding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. And we've never needed it more. Right. Right. Very, very important work. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's been an, an honor to kind of watch the evolution of the of the work that you have done in the years that I have known you, which at this point is. I know. I know. Like, what what year did you start at CRCDS? Two thousand nine. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And I think we actually met before that because you were invited to the U of R at least once. Yes, I, I, I do. I, I really I remember because I remember you seem so serious. You were like really intent listening. <laughs> I was that person <laughs> and you, you helped me grow into, you know, the things that I could be as you have done for all of the people that you've helped then and now. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What right now excites you? I don't, you know, honestly, this was, I think the hardest question that you gave yeah. me. On a personal level, um, I mean, I'm I'm going to be a grandmother, so I'm excited Aww. about that. <laughs> yeah, That's so wonderful. yeah, so so my daughter Kate um, is due to have a baby girl in December, mm -hmm. um, so we're excited about that. But 
you know, when I think about like the the things that I'm drawn to in terms of, you know, reading and, you know, what excites me, uh, you know, when I did my doctoral work, um, I was really focused on new um, new expressions of the church. And you know, because, I mean, we, we know that there's, the statistics aren't great, you know, when it comes to institutional churches. And um, so I think I get excited when I think about what the next generation might bring in terms of new expressions. We don't have to keep doing things the same way. And, um, you know, so, so what, what will the church look like 10, 20, 30 years from now? And, and so, um, it, you know, it, it's like, I, I've kind of dabbled a little bit in it myself. You know, my, my husband and I, um, for, for about five years, we, we had a little group that we called Caritas and mm -hmm. it was, it wasn't a church. We didn't call it a church. We said, you know, it's just, it's, a, it's an informal group of people to come together, ask questions, um, be in community together, you know, but it was like, we kind of viewed it as like, a, maybe this is a one way you could have a new expression of the church where um, it, it wasn't institutionalized in any way. We didn't ask people to su subscribe to any faith statement. It's like, let's just, you know, you know, we had people who, who still love Jesus, but they weren't so sure about the church. And so, <laughs> so so I guess, you know, when I look at, you know, what, what excites me is just, I guess, the opportunity and some of the new things that I'm seeing um, younger uh, clergy do to bring creativity and revitalization to the church. Yeah. 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 And in every generation, the church has to find something new that it can be to the people or it becomes obsolete and dies. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So the place where we always end these interviews is a beloved question. If you could tell the world one thing about God, what would it be? All right. What well, can I say two things? Oh, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> say two things. All right. I mean, because you have to say that God is love because I believe that God is love. But I also think what I would say is to be open to allowing God to express God's self in new ways throughout your life. And, um, we're, you know, we're given kind of a God box when we're, when we're young and, and so allow those parameters to be broken open and uh, just God is immense. God is infinite. And so I think always being open to learning and ex experiencing God in new ways. That's <laughs> mm, beautiful. It's beautiful and essential for the work of knowing God in the world. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Thank you so much for talking to us, Melissa. It's a real, real treat to get to see you and talk to you again. And I, I know that this will be a blessing to, to those who get to listen to this. Oh, thank yes. you. I, I appreciate being invited. It truly was an honor and a little bit of a surprise. So, so thank you. <laughs> Keep up that critical work. Thank you. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Please do. All right. Thank cool. you. Right. Peace and Take love. Take care. Bye-bye. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer. <laughs>